Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. We're here to discuss your fabulous book, Crossing the Threshold. Um, people will probably know you from your channel as well, Footnotes to Plato. Um, but this book is really, I mean, you're hitting, you're on the money in terms of what the question is at the moment in philosophy and for the future of philosophy. The what 400 years of modern philosophy has unfortunately spent all its time discussing. So I suppose to kind of get people into it at the start, you know, what is the Kantian divide? You talk about modern philosophy as a crime scene. You know, what what was the crime? Who did it? And uh, yeah, maybe lay out the, the scene for us if you can. Well, I'm very excited to be uh, in conversation with you, Mahon. So thanks for inviting me on uh, to talk about this book. Um, and this question, you know, yeah, the Kantian divide. Um, I, I refer to the crime that you're mentioning as imagicide. Uh, the power of imagination was something that um, all the philosophers going back to the, uh, the ancient Greeks uh, wanted to understand, but were also a bit... Um, um, there was a need to hold imagination at a distance because it could very easy, easily swallow you. I mean, Plato would talk about this in terms of like um, a kind of divine madness that might overtake you if you were to just um, fully uh, immerse yourself in this imaginative power that's at the base of the soul. And this becomes uh, an important theme for Kant as well in his critique of pure reason, where he's, beginning that book by saying, look, human beings just kind of, we kind of come divided into these two um, powers or faculties, sensibility and understanding, um, percepts and concepts, right? And uh, a lot of the work of, of thinking as Kant understood, it was an attempt to put the two together um, to synthesize concepts with percepts. And he, and he realized in the course of writing the critique of pure reason, especially in the first edition, right, that imagination is really the common core of what appears to be these two divided halves of sensibility and understanding. Uh, and he, he admits this, he says, like, literally, that the imagination is the mysterious root of our two powers, sensibility and understanding. And it, it somehow mediates between the two, he, he develops this idea of um, schematism, right, which connects abstract concepts of the understanding uh, to our perceptual experience of space and time and objects within space and time. Um, and so, you know, Kant was reading dogmatic rationalism coming out of Leibniz and, and uh, uh, Christian Wolff at the time in Germany. And and he got a hold of David Hume, this British empiricist who was challenging that whole idea of a priori metaphysics. And his philosophy is an attempt to, to bridge this divide, right, between the empiricists emphasizing percepts and the, the the rationalists emphasizing concepts. And what he pulls off is, is quite brilliant, but there's a sense in which um, in the second edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, in response to critics who were mistaking Kant for more of a subjective idealist, um, Kant was trying to hold a better balance than that. In response to these critics, he downplayed the role of imagination um, he kind of backed away from this mystery uh, to instead um, focus on a the, the division between the phenomenal realm that we can apply our concepts to and what he called the realm of things in themselves. And 
Kant really, if he if he didn't leave us with an ontological dualism, as you get in Descartes between thinking substance and extended substance. In in Kant, we have an epistemological dualism where we're left with um, conceptual knowledge of a um, perceptual arena that is all in some way um, constructed by the transcendental conditions of our own knowing, uh, our own instrument of knowing, let's say. So Kant leaves us trapped in this epistemological solipsism, uh, would be one way to put it. And in this book, I'm trying to um, acknowledge Kant's achievement, but also look again at what he backed away from, which is imagination, uh, and try to redirect our philosophical attention to that. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting that Kant's not really a bad guy here, because it's easy to kind of paint him. I suppose the subjective idealist claim maybe is to try and put him into that box of on one side of the divide or other, but he really does seem to be trying to pull together the worlds of the materialist determinist paradigm that's emerging and then also the subjective inner moral sense that has become so bifurcated um, even between rationalists and empiricists. And we're still completely struggling with this dualism today. I mean, you see this everywhere with something I was talking about with Ian McGilchrist and my last podcast was on like uh, Robert Sapolsky's Determined book. And you see like the kind of the, a lot of these ideas that were in philosophy, you know, three, 400 years ago are still ticking along. Um, even though somebody like Kant attempted to kind of bring them together. I mean, how does, do, do, are you implying in a sense that free will is part of the imagination then? Is there a connection yeah, in that, that? It is. I think that is a connection. There's another Kantian dualism uh, besides this phenomena, noumena or, uh, you know, appearance and thing in itself dualism that he leaves us with. There's this, uh, theory practice dualism that, that you're kind of hinting at here. Um, you know, Kant writes another critique, the critique of practical reason, um, after the critique of pure reason, which dealt with theoretical reason. Um, and he, he does claim when he's talking about practical reason or our, our, our freedom to act, um, autonomously to be our own lawgivers. Uh, he says that that capacity that we have does actually grant us some access to this noumenal realm that he forbids us theoretical knowledge of, right? So in our practical activity, Kant says, yeah, we're free. How are we free? I can't explain it to you in terms of science, which is mechanistic and deterministic. Um, but it, we must be free because if we weren't free, that very scientific knowledge wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't be able to think it. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do experimental uh, science uh, or mathematics, all of these, th all of these things, he Kant would say presuppose the freedom of the eye to think and to synthesize concepts and percepts. Right, so you can't have science without this freedom. Um, yeah. Even though that scientific knowledge can't understand the possibility of its own freedom, and that's the it's dualism. Like a the scientific with. ontology, isn't it? Between, I mean, mm -hmm. that human beings are so kind of unreliable, and uh, sense our senses can be so biased that we have to be kind of excluded by the scientific method, but that at the end it has to be interpreted and communicated and known. The Kant was very no worried that we would be incre the human would be increasingly reduced to um, a machine, 
that could be studied with a behaviorist method. Kant was worried that that would happen, which is why he was arguing on transcendental grounds or on let's purely yes. philosophical grounds that no, we're mm. free. There's no way to get behind that without undermining your own capacity to know that we yeah. were machines uh, or that anything could be mechanistic and explained that way. Mm -hmm. And do you think this was gonna, this was kind of inevitable because there was something, I mean, you pointed out the kind of natural theology solution to that problem, which was in, in Plato's philosophy anyway, the good that there's just this connection between mind and reality that, you know, you're capable of the spiritual ascension is, is the beatific vision in a sense is to see that source of intelligibility or the connection between the wedding of logos and ontos of intelligibility and reality. Um, and that seems to have come under fire in a sense in this, um, I don't know if it was purely the scientific revolution or do you think it was just kind of inevitable in a sense that there was going to be that, well, there's that a different, wasn't a sufficient argument maybe i think it's you know the rise of nominalism even before the scientific revolution mm. which originally was an argument on behalf of theologians who didn't want god's power to be limited yeah because it was william of Ockham, wasn't it it was yeah. from within i mean yeah really just so not you know for plato um god's power is 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 in some sense limited to what's good um, right. The good is not good because God says it's good. God is good because it's the good in Plato's view. Whereas in this medieval Christian view, it increasingly was many theologians began to argue that, well, because God is omnipotent, you can't, God is not subject even to logic. Um, right. And so, and this is what's driving Descartes also this, this sense that God's power should not be, um, limited in any way. Um, even and so you know god can make five plus seven equal 14 uh if god wants to um yeah yep. that i think is where you we we start to and it's not that we can avoid the nominalistic um challenge and i mean in my in my book i i i try to confront uh nietzsche on this and related issues like the whole idea of an essential uh, good or a, um, a a telos that would inform the world and inform each of us within that world about what we ought to do. I think there's there's no room really um, after nominalism or after Kant or after Nietzsche <laughs> to just naively affirm that. But I think you know the reason I draw on Whitehead and Schelling as a way beyond this con these Kantian divides is because I think they provide us a, a way of returning to theology that's not ontotheological, which is a term Kant used, but Heidegger really emphasizes as a, as a way of saying, um, closing ourselves to an encounter with being by thinking we know in advance what being is and that being is just this all-powerful God. Um, I don't think Shelley and Whitehead's theologies are are doing that they're more experientially rooted rather than rooted in some a priori metaphysics or something yeah and that way i suppose you don't need a final end that everything's tending towards of say that there's like a final form of life that is the whole universe is kind of which becomes quite deterministic in a way but i suppose to go back to the nominalism because that really is the start then of the prioritization 
of the physical and the demotion of the imagination because things that are imaginary i mean you do see it in plato as well because we have this duality to the imagination that on one hand it can be it affords us perception that isn't possible by just our sense perception but on the other hand it can lead us to delusion and madness as you pointed out and do you think the nominalism because it seems a lot of science is just like all right we can't trust that we kind of have to just cut that off like that's it's a bit mysterious for us to be able to use it fully because it's not i mean i don't know if you'd call it methodological i suppose um or it's hard to schematize in that way um yeah yeah there's some thoughts you know, one of the other important themes in this book is um, this cosmotheanthropic vision or principle that um, the philosopher uh, Raimundo Panikkar develops, where, you know, to, when we imagine God and we imagine the human being, we're doing, we're always working with analogies. And so to understand the human being as all of our capacity for knowledge and for action as rooted in this power of imagination we're also, I think, analogously talking about a kind of God that doesn't have um, omnipotent power to create a universe from nothing. Um, but but if God's power of creation is imaginative, like our power of creation, then God's going to always be creating like in the middle of things um, without a clear separation between uh, what's body and what's mind or what's sensory and what's... In, intelligible uh it's it's all mixed up i mean imagination yep. is just as sensual as it is um essential i mean or, or archetypal right it's it's totally the um point of meeting and contrast between those uh that division um and so yeah if we're if we're reimagining our human power of conscious knowledge or conscious action we're also always reimagining the divine, um, and what we mean by creation, um, what we mean by a world that is quite obviously ordered, um, but also open in the sense that, that that order is unfinished and still in the process of, um, ingressing would be Whitehead's word or emanating. If we want to use like a word that for is borrowing from the Neoplatonists, uh, yeah. So it's not formally closed in a sense. There's an openness to it, but there is still a, an ordering. And, and that imagination can connect us to that. I mean, like Jung, I'm a huge fan of Jung, to be honest. And he, he really leaned on the imagination as the kind of missing connection to the unconscious um, for human beings. His process of active imagination that he used in the Red Book um, in order to gain a lot of insights into what would be his journey of individuation was almost entirely based on a, a kind of imagination that is like contemplative, meditative, also semi kind of dramatic that you're allowing your imagination to inform you. Cause I mean, dreams as well are imaginary and there's, there is information in them that we are not consciously aware of. So there's at the very least a therapeutic argument, I think for why that could be, I mean, in anomalous framework, you can't admit any of that into the pantheon of, knowledge yeah. well nominal yeah nominalism assumes that the adult human being the the adult ego with uh its physical senses is is the final stage of development for um the human mm -hmm. right and i think what jung jung is and and transpersonal psychology more generally 
would be saying there's actually a further stage of human development. <laughs> uh, you can't skip the stage of the sense bound e ego, intellect, uh, rational mind. Like you have to achieve that. And then you can continue to develop where the ego recognized. I mean, this was Jung's journey as he laid out in his red book. It's a confrontation with madness in a way. The ego has to recognize that it's not the master of its own house and that there are other mm -hmm. complexes at work, other modes of consciousness within one's own psyche, and that the ego, to the extent that it thinks it's in charge, is repressing those other complexes. And, you know, for Jung, to not acknowledge the agencies at work in the unconscious psyche is to be uh to have one's fate determined by those unconscious complexes and so confronting this imaginative generative core of our of our own souls our own experience is this initiatory path and it sounds spooky but it's also just i think the natural course of human development um if if you can move beyond just the kind of it's not just an illusion but it as a resting place as a sense of finality it is an illusion this this body-bound ego or skin encapsulated ego is one of my favorite philosophers alan watts used to call it um we need to go through that to something else which i think requires crossing this threshold of imagination where you really do touch the ground of your own being hmm. and see that that is also the ground of being and that's um this this is not easy this is but i think it's what human beings are being called to do because we do have there we are evolving everything's evolving and we're yes. not finished yet the human being is not I mean, finished it's kind of how our self-transcendence occurs is the interesting thing i made an argument in a previous podcast um about the plotinus and the neoplatonist um thought of themselves as dividuals and you've probably heard of the divine double stuff charles strang um, i read his book a while back mm -hmm. um which is very good on it and that they had this idea that you were a, you had a daemon or a dividual and i think one way to interpret that in a more naturalistic framework is that that's the ideal future self i mean we have like, we can imagine a future self we can imagine a range of future selves um good ones bad ones hypothetically there's a best one there's one that fits the most and it's only through that imaginative image that we can structure our it has a causal power to actually structure our behavior it's not it's not causally determinative in a like efficient cause kind of way but in a sense that if i want to be the best football player in the world i have to spend my days playing football that that image that future hypothesized good structures my behavior in the present and there's no other way for me to do that so in nominalism the idea that that's not real when it actually has causal power over me right. i think really limits our ability to actually self-transcend to become better versions of ourselves and maybe that's feeding into the meaning crisis and the developmental issues we're seeing um i think that's nominalism loss yeah, yeah. very well Sorry. said yeah yeah i think of nominalism as like the iconoclasm that was necessary to break us free of the idea that we could just dogmatically inherit the form, the that the structure of intelligibility that we could just inherit that from the past because it's finished. Nominalism needed to destroy that idea, but now we need to recover in the wake of that destruction a new way of participating in the process of formation that's always ongoing, right? And it doesn't happen 
without us. I mean, that's the real danger here is like, I think there's a, there's a connection between our human capacity to consciously partake in this process of formation and the earth's, the earth itself's ability to continue to live, you know, and, and evolve. Like the human being needs to show up to, to uh, help this process along or, or, or if, if we don't show up for that, we end up destroying it. Um, and I think that's what we've been busy doing for a few centuries here. Uh, I don't think, I think there's still, there's still time, but it's, um, we're running out of it in terms of the development into this new way of, you know, being a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do take things like, you know, transpersonal psychology really seriously, even though there can be a lot of woo there, but it's really just acknowledging, um, we have to make this shift from thinking of God as something external to the world to Whitehead refers to it as the, um, the dire need to secularize the concept of God's function in the world. And so as you were describing the way that like this ideal self is this cause from the future, um, there are future forms that lure us towards them. And so they affect the present. Um, that's God's doing. That's what Whitehead would refer to as the, the, um, imminent divine eros, um, the, you know, the Greek term for love that's um, pulling us to involve ourselves more in the world because because we believe it it can be more beautiful, right? And that that's not a God ex- outside the world who designed it all in advance and and sets it running like a machine. It's it's a God that only has power to persuade through our own experience as creatures of what would be better, of what would be beautiful, of good uh, or good and true. Um, so it's, a, I think, a more secular image of God after nominalism destroyed the more overly yeah. transcendent image of God. Yeah, and it, it, at the same, that's so because it, it requires our participation in it, even in that the idea of the the ideal future self. I mean, that because that was a big shift for me, I suppose, coming from a more, I suppose, like implicitly materialist framing. I wasn't particularly happy about it, but. Um, I didn't really, I was like raised as an atheist. So I looked very much at religion as a series of kind of just disconnected fictions or stories. Um, And so the idea that that future image could have causal powers over how we behave and the, the shift between what's real as what's physically real and what's real as in causally powerful. Like, because yeah. for though, for the Neoplatonists that, divine double was realer than a material object in any sense because it it has such power to transform us like we have this separation between what's real for us and what's powerful and what's actually transformative and i think it's put us on a real dilemma whereby what's true is meaningless and what's false Mm -hmm. is meaningful so it's like to be (laughs) to be affected by that meaning is somehow to be living a lie if you're believing these imaginations but then to be have the truth, you're cut off from all of this imaginative development. And I think that's where a lot of modern individuals are are struggling. Um, yeah. I suppose maybe to come back around onto Kant. Well, I know, sorry, you can go ahead and maybe come back and then we can circle back. Sorry. Well, just the one comment I would want to amplify in what you're saying there is like, instead of having this split between what can have a causal effect uh, and what's physically real, you know, Whitehead borrows this line from, Plato's dialogue, uh, the sophist, 
where Plato says being is power, or Plato has Socrates says being is simply power, where power is not just the ability to act on something else, but to be acted upon, to to affect and to be affected by. Uh, mm. That's what being is, is that, and so it's a very relational vision shifting us away from having to even split something physical from the forces that it exchanges with other physical things. It's like being is, being is the forces, um, you know, and, and Schelling does something similar in his uh, philosophy of nature. So that's a very important shift um, conceptually. It might sound really abstract, but it has real consequences yep. for how we understand um, for our, our ontology. I mean, what we think I, is 100%, real. <laughs> and how, how we connect, because that kind of like the shift from like naive realism, whereby we look at the objects as, as objects and it's almost like Kant you talk about how he like inverts the he's like the Copernican revolution of the mind whereby they're thinking that it's this the in naive realism we're almost like a camera that just records the world and it is as it is but Kant goes the other way and says okay no our our cognition is structuring you know space time the conditions of it um which is probably what opens him up to the charge I suppose of subjective idealism um but do you see that then as Kant, because you talk about them as the guardian of the threshold in a sense. So is that to get away from the naive realism, which has you know certain problems, that's a slightly more developed version to be able to see the cognition in the object, but perhaps that's yeah. not the final resting point. I mean, Kant is in a way like one of the first philosophers to reveal the relational essence of experience, which is to say we, we can't um, separate ourselves from the phenomena that we observe because we are part of what is organizing them as phenomena. And that's a, that's a deep insight um, to be able, it's, it's Kant seeing himself seeing. And that self-reflexive move where you're not just asking, what do I know? But you're asking, what can I know? What are the conditions of the possibility of any knowledge whatsoever? And that's just a new question. (laughs) And it's really important for natural science. He was very concerned to provide metaphysical foundations for science. Like, what does science presuppose? Well, Kant says it presupposes we have uh, an understanding which is structured in a categorical way with clear concepts and a logic connecting them, right? So science presupposes logic. Uh, And science presupposes that we have this mathematical form of knowledge, which Kant calls synthetic a priori knowledge, which is a fancy way of talking about how um, when we we imagine space where, um, or we imagine time, that there's a certain order that we have intuitive access to that uh, structures anything we might then go try to measure in nature in advance of our measuring it, right? And so this is why we can do... Which is familiar in physics now. Physics, yeah, exactly. We could do physics, mathematical physics. And there's still, to this day, all sorts of um, questions about this miraculous correlation between mathematical models that we can come up with and our empirical observations of the way that the physical world operates. Um, Kant would say, well, this is no mystery. That's because we can only experience the physical world in terms of those uh, 
mathematical models. And, you know, math is advanced beyond the Euclidean form of geometry that Kant knew about and arithmetic has, has advanced, um, you know, in the late 19th and all well, through the 19th and 20th centuries, um, especially. So we have non-Euclidean geometries and we have all sorts of higher mathematics, category theory and things that um, I'm not equipped to talk to you about. But um, that doesn't necessarily challenge Kant's basic point, right, about this self-reflexive move that he's making and the way that um, our way are the structures of our imagination do in some sense provide the structure of the world. And they're, and so either we accept that as this subjectivist um, critical posture that we can't know anything at all, or, you know, what I'm trying to say is our own imagination is itself a finite repetition of, of, an, of a cosmic imagination. And we can access that cosmic imagination and we need to develop a method for doing so scientifically, mm. but we can access it and begin to develop knowledge that's not limited to the physical senses because we already kind of have that with the synthetic a priori mathematical um intuition that that kant was talking about so this is why kant's not the bad guy he's the guardian of the threshold into a new way of doing science yes and there's something there's something i was meaning to ask you before actually which was coming up a lot as it was something that got me really excited about um, reading this book and about your work as well, which was um, Transcendental Apperception. I don't know if you ever read a book by Richard Carney called The Wake of Imagination. He's an oh, Irish no. philosopher. Oh. I've heard of him, yeah. It might be worth checking out because I he makes a very similar argument that like Western philosophy mm. has is, is in trouble because they threw out imagination, basically. Like this is, we need to find a way to bring it back into the ontology. Um and I, I found that book very synchronously, I suppose, when I was doing my undergraduate and was just, it, there was something about it that really appealed to me, but he talked about transcendental apperception, but I've never fully understood the, maybe the ramifications of it. Because in my understanding that transcendental apperception is how we understand new impressions by their being contextualized by a pre-existing body of ideas. So like, I can learn what a fork is because I know what food is and what eating is and what, you know, a, a knife is and a fork. Like it exists within this kind of network of ideas. And then new things that we learn are contextualized by that network. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. don't know how accurate that is, but that's kind of my understanding. I think this transcendental unity of apperception is, uh, it's the, it's the fundamental idea of Kant's whole scheme. I mean, everything kind of rests on that, as you're saying. It's the basis of memory and thus our ability to contextualize new experiences so as to uh, know what we are experiencing. We relate it to what we've experienced in the past. And this transcendental unity is something Kant says we can't actually directly experience or intuit, but we have to presuppose it for anything that we do know to be possible. Um, like the transcendental unity of apperception is more a reference to the unity of our self in a way. Um, yeah, how, how do yeah. I have a, a sense of continuity of I am the same self I was a few minutes ago. And so the thought I'm developing continues to make sense. Um, but there's also the transcendental unity of, of the manifold, uh, the sensory manifold or uh, physical nature. Perceptual binding. Yeah, basically that's how contemporary neuroscience would refer to it. But 
-hmm. We have science has to assume that nature is a unified system. Assume that it is. You can't discover that it is because any, like the pursuit of laws already presupposes that nature is a unified system. And so this is a transcendental, uh, this is, this is part of what it means to do transcendental philosophy is, you know, whether we're talking about the unity of our own sense of self, which we can't directly experience, but just have to presuppose or the transcendental unity of nature, which we can't prove. We just have to presuppose this is Kant sort of, um, out contextualizing, I think any, any naive materialism or naive realism, um, you just can't really hold that position anymore without refusing to think i i mean not to be rude or anything to materialists but and that seems to be the position that we're in in a sense i mean i see so many of these arguments online and for me like the enlightenment is kind of that the presupposition underneath it of naive realism even in a the attention literature is really interesting because it's very it's quite disparate and divided but like if you look at predictive processing and Verveke's work on relevance realization and trying to integrate them. It's like that you're seeing the relevance realization process is a prejudging process. It's a valuation that exists underneath perception because we're, we're prioritizing fundamentally our perceptions. We're seeing what is relevant to our embodied motivational action, goal directed, you know, organism. And um, we're not just seeing things out there by themselves and that's from within science itself i mean within an evolutionary framework that seems to be i mean that's the the evolutionary argument against naturalism that our perceptions have evolved for uh survival and reproduction not necessarily for objective reality so you know how do we prove but it seems like that's like a you know there's there's the next bit then of like how where is the real now where has that moved to if it's not this material which is an interesting doorway, but also kind of maybe anxiety provoking. Well, I think it's, Whitehead says it's a move from materialism to organism. And so what does that mean? It's a shift from the idea that fundamentally the world is a collection of objects uh, blindly colliding with one another to an understanding of the world is composed of agencies which uh, do have some degree of self-creativity right? But that they're not um, isolated windowless monads, as Leibniz thought, but that the agencies composing the world, you know, for Whitehead are um, in deep sympathy and resonance with one another. Um, and he, he wants to be able to say that they are sharing a nexus in their activities, while also moment by moment, um, breaking free of any closed order established by that nexus so as to it's like instead of a finished space-time fabric that you might imagine in, in an einsteinian universe whitehead's fabric is still in the process of weaving itself it's fraying at the edges uh and every edge is like a you know the hyphae of a mycelial network continuing to to burrow um into the unknown into um possibility and the physical world that you know we've for the last few hundred years uh the dominant culture has increasingly led us to believe is all that there is the physical world is more like a the wake left behind this the creative activity of these agencies um these actual occasions of experience as whitehead calls them or organisms um 
And so it's not that the physical world isn't real. It's very real. It's in fact, what's most actual about reality, but reality also includes the possible. And that's everything that's present here and now in its absence. In other words, it's the ideal self that's luring us from the future. It could be, we want it to be here. It's not yet here, but it has a causal influence because we desire it. We want it. We are striving for it. And that kind of agency that's born out of this, um, at the fraying edges of what's already actual and what's still yet possible, um, that is, that's imagination. That is, um, that is what we ultimately are and what, you know, um, Whitehead's whole philosophy is trying to orient us within, uh, right. To put us in that situation and give us a sense of how we can better participate in it. Yeah. Cause I had, I'm really not familiar with Whitehead, but I'm going to have to be more because it, a lot of, um, it does, it, it's kind of like an alternate cosmology. Is it, is it like oh, a, absolutely. A, re, a complete, um, cause it, yeah, it is, um, I find it very, yeah, convergent with a lot of the stuff that I've been learning. And, but then I suppose there's a whole new vocabulary and kind of an, an obstacle for, um, seeing it so do you see it dovetailing with anything i mean like as your your chat footnotes to plato i mean white no a whitehead uh you know described all history as footnote or all western philosophy as footnotes to plato um do you think is he is it in plato as well is he it is there an origin there or is it is whitehead's thing just like totally without precedence I don't think it is actually. I mean, it's hard to fully uh, understand his philosophy at first pass because of all the new words, but most of the words aren't even actually new. He's he's just mm -hmm. um, resuscitating old English words, um, concrescence, pre I mean, prehension. They're, they're kind of just, they fill out of use. Um, but he's not that new. He really... A lot of process in reality, for example, is a deep reading of Plato and some early modern philosophers like Hume and Locke, especially Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, um, and Kant. Um, and so he's he's trying to think with this history and to gather together the scattered insights of philosophers who were in very different schools of thought, often antagonistic to one another, but he wanted to gather up as many of their insights and perspectives as he could, because his method is really radically empirical, whether he's studying the history of philosophy or the history of the universe. Um, so he wants to include as much as he can. Every, every experience counts as a another facet of reality, another way in which reality reveals itself. Um, and so he wants to include it all uh, as part of the evidence that his account, his cosmology would need to elucidate or explain or interpret. Um, but yeah, of course he's doing something quite novel. I mean, putting Whitehead in historical context might help. And I'll, I'll give the Sparknotes mm -hmm. version of this. You know, he's, he's at Cambridge teaching mathematics for, you know, two decades. He meets Bertrand Russell at the turn of the 20th century. They work on Principia Mathematica to, develop a mathematical logic uh, uh, to, to really um, prove why one plus one equals two. And 
they get three volumes in and there's all sorts of paradoxes and like patchworks that they have to put on this, this system they're building in order to avoid um, self-contradiction and Whitehead kind of gives up on it. They don't even bother with the fourth volume. Russell's dismayed. He really wanted the certainty he could achieve by finishing this system. Um, and part of what Russell and G.E. Moore and other Wittgenstein and other early sort of um, Anglo-American analytic philosophers at that time were trying to do was throw off this old British idealism, this view of uh, sort of a mystical unity of all things and that all of our finite knowledge is kind of illusory and um, really we're just, you know, part and parcel of this larger world current uh, that that finally is a kind of mind. Um, Russell and and Wittgenstein and um, you know more and others really hate. They they were originally idealists and they hated this and this view. They wanted to be more precise and rigorous and scientific. And Whitehead's kind of caught in the middle here. And one way of understanding his philosophy, organism, his new cosmology, is to compare it to one of the most famous British idealists of the nineteenth century, F. H. Bradley, Francis Herbert Bradley. Um, I've only dipped into his work recently, earlier this year, and it's it's fantastic. I'm not an idealist by temperament, but um, it's a beautiful, compelling account. It's like an empirical reading of Hegel, almost, where it's grounded more in feeling and experience, but ultimately still a kind of absolute idealism. And Whitehead takes Bradley and like turns him inside out, so that rather than there just being one absolute whole, that we are all just sort of finite blips within... Um, Whitehead puts the absolute inside of every concressing actual occasion. So he kind of takes the one absolute and pluralizes it so that every actual occasion of experience is recreating the universe uh, moment by moment. And it's, I mean, that's kind of dizzying, but it's an, Whitehead's philosophy is a kind of inversion of absolute idealism, um, which you, it's not a, it's not just a simple antithesis of it. It's a, I think a, a, a turning it inside out that allows you to not sacrifice um, plurality and some sense of open-ended creativity uh, and also not sacrifice some sense of being whole, some sense of the universe being one. It's just a one that's constantly reincarnating itself uh, through this process of concrescence. Does that make sense and at all? Yeah, no, no, it definitely do. It helps me to kind of think through it a little bit more and um on the back of that, yeah, how does, because it, yeah, it seems like he's overcoming dualism then in a sense, there's, there is a kind of unity, but I, as far as I understand, Whitehead was a, he was a Christian as well, because that was something that him and Bertrand Russell had, had some issues over. I'm not sure um, if he was Christian, really. I mean, his, or, his, um, yeah. his father was an Anglican uh, minister and educator. His grandfather was an Anglican minister and educator. He's, he's hmm. descendant of George Whitehead, the Quaker religious freedom fighter. Um, and so he's raised obviously in that context, but I think when he was at Cambridge, you know, he was a member of the Cambridge, uh, apostles, um, this, this student, student group, and they were known for their kind of radical, maybe atheist views. And I think, I don't know that he ever went around really calling himself an atheist necessarily, but he definitely, what seems to have gone through a period of rejecting the church, um, and his later philosophy is definitely, um, 
sort of foregrounding an image of God that's a lot like Christ, but I think he's all he also writes very critical he has very critical lectures that you can read on um Saint Augustine and uh the the way that Christian theology understood the con the, the concept of sin um and evil as um something that can be projected onto others like he really he doesn't like the church and its history as much as he acknowledges the important you know contributions that have been made intellectually uh, and morally also but i wouldn't say he's a christian without many qualifications um yeah yeah, yeah. no i know because it does yeah because it's not it's not a specifically like atheistic you know cosmology but at the same time it's not specifically you know theistic atheist. either yeah i mean it's <laughs> panentheistic is probably yeah, the best yeah. word for okay. it but that just means um you know that that god is a he has a god concept and then he has a little bit of discussion of religious psychology and how how we can relate to that god concept emotionally um, but he's primarily interested in the metaphysical function of God. So this is a metaphysician's God. To what extent yeah. it supports this or that religion? I mean, he ultimately wanted to be able to provide a metaphysical scheme that Buddhists, as much as Christians or, or Jews or Muslims or whoever could find, could recognize themselves in to some degree. Right? Yeah. Which seems very necessary in, you know, pluralistic multicultural secular right. societies um it's yeah and how does free will or human agency fit into his schema i mean we mentioned the problems of determinism versus you know human free will and it becomes almost synonymous with god in a sense that there has to be a god for there to be free will or else we live in this clockwork universe um you know yeah yeah, yeah. it was a change mm. Well, I think, you know, uh, any anyone thinking with Whitehead or interested in process philosophy is not going to be able to accept even the premises of the debate that lead to, like, Sapolsky's position that were just determined. Um, I think there are good reasons just internal to physics that if you're honest about the epistemological issues at play, force you to reject determinism. I mean, like, we can never know the initial conditions of any physical system with enough precision so as to deterministically predict um, indefinitely far out into the future how that system will behave. Um, and you, so you could say, oh, well, that's just an epistemological limitation, but in principle, okay, well, in principle, in principle, you, we can't know if we're determined through scientific means. So you can't lean on physics or whatever to say we're determined. Like that just doesn't make sense. But metaphysically speaking, you know, Whitehead's view of um, the process of um, creation, the, the, the process of manifestation or realization is such that uh, no, no two moments are identical. Every new moment that emerges is utterly unique, while it's also inheriting and um, repeating recapitulating everything which has come before it. Uh, and what, but what's added in each moment um, for Whitehead is just dependent on the scale of complexity that we're inquiring into. So if we're just talking about 
um, you know, a cosmic ray in deep space, um, it's mostly a repetitive waveform um, that can maintain that pattern of activity for a billion years, in hundreds of billions of years. Um, it may actually also be the case that you know there's something called um, tired light. It's it's a idea that as light travels through space for billions of years, it actually, there's a redshift that can occur because it it doesn't repeat itself forever. I mean, this is kind of like entropy in a way. Mm. Um, and so, at that simplest scale, though, it's nature is mostly repetitive. But as you get um, more complex forms of self organization emerging, then Whitehead talks about um, the contrasts of patterns and contrasts of contrast that can build up such that after a few billion years of evolution, you get animal bodies. And he describes animal bodies as these um, complex amplifiers of the vibrational patterns in the environment. And the body, animal bodies like channel and filter um, these vibratory patterns from the environment and um, pour them into some centralized part of the body, like the nervous system, and give rise to this sense of a synesthetic, uh, um, continuous sense of self that can um, engage its environment with with agency and purpose. And there's there's no sharp break between the freedom that such a conscious animal organism, like a human being, uh, can exercise, and the vibrational patterns um, that lie at the base of nature. There's no sharp break where all of a sudden freedom enters. There's already a certain mm. degree of creativity at the bottom floor, but yep. it's self-amplifying over the course of evolutionary time because learning is taking place. And um, you know, for Whitehead, there's a sort of aesthetic lure, an ideal that's, that's pulling this process of evolution forward, that's, that's driving this complexification and driving mm. this um, achievement of more and more freedom, more and more agency, uh, which, you know, you can measure the degree of freedom or agency by the extent to which that organism can, can manipulate and transform its environment. And all life, to some degree, transforms its environment. Um, human beings do so uh, at this point in our history. We're, we're pretty much on par now with tectonic plates, super volcanoes, and, and meteorites, right? So um, yep. that's um, we're a planetary power now. We're not quite conscious of the consequences of that power ethically and in terms of the long-term future. We're barely waking up to that. Um, but, uh, our freedom is clearly more power. It's a greater causal as it has just as much causal agency on the planet as any of the physical stuff going on. Right. That is, yeah, it's such a good point that the, in an open universe, that's not, if you, in the materialist picture where the universe is a formally closed system, like freedom is the abnormality, but in a open system where things are continually, you know, it's, it, it is laden with its past and pregnant with the future. It's constantly going through this process of it leaves a trail, but it's on the journey that's creating it. I mean, freedom is the norm, really. It's it's not. It's stasis is the unusual case of the kind of motion and flow that is, um, which makes so much more sense. I mean, it, it really, and it was something that something that really struck me about your book, which I've heard before, but never really, never actually struck me, was the idea of this vegetable 
kind of universe like the in between of uh, like a vegetable almost between like the object and the subject like they're alive but kind of like an object and uh, acting as like this in between for life it had never i'd heard of these kind of ideas before but it never actually struck me as something that made sense um so i wonder if that does that kind of fill in some of the gap as well for you um yeah that's actually a better metaphor then the sort of the idea that the physical world is the wake left behind this creative activity to think of it like a tree um because the complexity achieved at the branches the twigs the leaves the the flowers and fruits that occur at the edge of the growth of this tree all depend on the support of the the trunk right and so it's not like the physical world is just the wake we leave behind it's like no that's our um that's our support system we're like our capacity to to move our bodies is totally dependent on the 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 iron in our hemoglobin that was forged in in dying stars like so that's all part of the trunk that makes possible um the agency that we express right in this moment that i'm able to keep my muscles oxygenated um and so it's it's not just like we're surfing like on a um on the water and that it like we are made of that water. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I think the vegetable ontology or vegetal ontology um, is it's, it's part analogy, but it's, I think also, I really mean it as more than a metaphor. I think it's quite, yeah. Literal in a sense of, yeah. Like everything there is firm separation. Yeah. Everything is alive. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that we typically understand the plant world as um you know everyone admits plants are alive but whether or not they're sentient i mean we're starting to recognize that they are sentient in various ways um but i think it's an easier step for people to think of um all physical organization as uh having i mean it's i play with the etymology there's a there's a phyto i mean physis the, the greek and phyto this the, the word for for plant uh are related for a reason. And so there's a way in which everything physical is already a process of growth and generation. And all you have to do is view the universe as a process of cosmogenesis through its various stages of more and more complex organization to see that to be physical is not to just be dead stuff colliding. It's when you mm -hmm. just study the physical universe, you're seeing the history of, of a growth process. And yeah, there's, there was just fundamental particles, seeds at the beginning, implanted in some mysterious kind of soil, this matrix of, um, what, you know, space time that's itself in the process of, of foaming forth. Um, it's not that the space time pre-exists the seeds. It's like all, um, life creating its own niche as it goes. Right. Um, mm. so yeah, I, I think of it as a, it is a, a metaphor, but you can't escape metaphor in science. Like any any scientific theory is ultimately resting on some kind of metaphor or analogy, comparing this to that, comparing something we know to something we don't, so as to gain knowledge of what uh, what it is. And I just think the plant metaphor works much better than the dead particle metaphor. I think it's even more than a metaphor, to be honest. Just as you were saying, I was looking. I have like mm. a bookshelf over here, and to think of the bookshelf, which is made of wood, mm -hmm. and like yeah, I look at it as an object, but I mean, that was a tree that began as something else yeah. that was a seed that has gone through this process of 
and now it's dead and then eventually you know it'll be recycled and it will go back into something else i mean the to focus on it just as a material object is really to zoom in on what it is right now in this very specific case and once you start to think out a little bit more you get this quite different picture i think we're very stuck culturally on that zoomed in picture that's really an abstraction in a way from a broader but this is a challenging thought right like because i would say one of the implications of this kind of vegetal ontology is that when you think about the earth itself as a as a physical body i think Mm. we we can say that actually the the rocks or uh, the mineral dimension of the earth um did not precede life um, everything that we recognize as the mineral, whether it's the soil, the rocks, um, everything. I mean, I, we could say that the mantle and the core that that's not made by life, but I think there's a way in which life on the surface still participates at that depth, uh, nonetheless. But but it, just to grant that the very tectonic movement of the plates, many geologists argue, is driven by the buildup of calcium deposits because of um, microscopic sea creatures whose skeletal systems are uh, made of cal- of uh, calcium, coccolithophores, I think they're called, and that there's so many of them and just builds up over millions of years, it, it sinks the tectonic plates down and drives that process. And so the idea would be that the mineral dimension is a kind of excretion of the living dimension, right? So life... Yep precedes matter matter is is the is the decay of life and that's yes, a shift and, um yeah that is important massive. implications <laughs> that's huge because it, it really does overcome a, a big lacuna in terms of this i remember alex huxley talking about it, that uh you know it's either you have a dead world that somehow miraculously produced life or it's alive all the way down like it it almost it doesn't make sense for somehow life to emerge from dead stuff i mean yeah but i I would also say that it's not that they're like it's life all the way down but there's also like death is an important part of the process of life yeah yeah right so that we're we're made of dead um we're made of dead life in a way like that everything that we're inheriting is fossilized um the, the fossilized achievements of of past agencies that live on in cool. our recollection of them, our re-embodiment of them. Um, and so we, you, death is very important like, um, to this process because it's what, it's what the present is built out of in a way. <laughs> um, evolution depends on death. I mean, think about it that way. So I don't want to make it just, it, it might sound a little too Pollyanna to say that it's all alive and, because it, it can yes, taste the dark no, side I think of life. That's fair. And I'm trying to yeah. be, I mean, I suppose not, because um, these are important topics, I think, in terms of actually getting them to a point where, you know, people can see the value in this kind of thinking. Because in some, like, well, corners of the internet, but in the broader culture, we get very locked into these ways of thinking that there's this literal world of facts and it's like this and, you know, there's no other way of seeing it. And that can become, um, I mean, you see the problems with the meaning crisis where you have 80 90 percent of people in the uk believe their lives are meaningless um and that's that comes from a lot of this ontology like it really and it's only the imaginative process of re reaffirming or re rediscovering i suppose what was lost but not getting rid of what we found in this modern philosophy movement that can actually 
start to get us beyond that, I think. So it is a very serious um, endeavor, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is a pivotal moment in in human history. And I think philosophy has an important role to play here, but it's, it's not... Um, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is meaningless for a lot of people because it's, I think, you know, something I struggle with is just the importance of translating this. And I do feel that the world's uh, religious traditions, these, these enduring um, wisdom traditions, which are as institutions, not perfect to say the least um, still have a role to play here. It's like, we can't, you know, we're using this metaphor of, of how we are, the universe is this kind of growing tree and our civilizations at this point are branches branching off of thicker branches that are forged out of this, this religious consciousness. And so there's, there is a need to um, recover some of the symbols, the practices, um, the, the world making rituals that are, that are already there Um none of our modern secular lives and forms of government and, and even economics are fully separated from certain ritual forms of behavior that, that have been formed by these religious institutions over thousands of years. And so it's like waking up to what we're already doing and doing it more consciously and um, conscientiously. I think so much of the, modern movement away from religious dogmatism on behalf of the freedom of individuals has been absolutely essential. But uh, to just leave us as these autonomous egos seeking their own finite fulfillments that ultimately have no greater context within which to plug themselves in to a, to a larger meaning story, um, that's a losing... Um, operation i mean that's a that's a um that our civilization has reached that point and that there are no there is a meaning crisis people recognize the crisis but that there aren't yet clear pathways beyond that um is worrying and it's especially worrying that like the smartest people on the planet are the most resistant to the idea of a of some kind yeah. of um deeper meaning that we plug ourselves into because they're so suspicious of, you know, traditional religion. And I get that, but, but it's a problem. And so, I, you know, I, I try to address it, but, um, it's, it requires both trying to have one foot in academia where we speak these technical languages and read these impossibly hard books and have another foot, I guess, on the internet and, you know, trying to translate and, and bridge between other communities um, of practice and discourse that aren't just lost in the books. Um, and I don't know to what extent I'm successful at that, but um, that's the effort at least. Yeah. And you can, not, this isn't a shameless plug, but you can definitely feel it from the book. That was something I noticed because the topics are very difficult, very deep, but your language and the way you write is very charitable. It's very much inviting you in. It's quite poetic and it's it's very much, you can see how you want people to to be able to live within 
these ideas and to understand them, which was very much appreciated with my own, you know, difficulties in learning stuff. Um, I, I, I could really appreciate that as well as the, the depth of the thinking um, because it's, it's so important. Oh, thanks. So glad to hear that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. Hopefully we can do it again next time. Maybe we'll Absolutely. discuss the, uh, yeah, the meaning crisis and the technological outgrowths of these, um, yeah, some of these like ontological and epistemological issues. Let's do it. Yeah, thanks so much, Mahan. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate your attention.